I'm Carrie Lloyd, and you're listening to the Carry On Podcast. Come and stay a while amid the British charm that is called my brain. I'm a journalist and pastor in California, but don't hold that against me. I wasn't brainwashed. I chose to leave my atheism on my own accord, consequently after two sips of Kool-Aid. But that's for another time. These opinions are my own most of the time. The humour was learned of a book I found in a hedge, and the dreamer in me, well, she's here to stay. So you're very welcome. Today I wanted to talk a little bit about Loving the Addict. It's quite a controversial title. I did it controversially um, purely because most of the time when we're facing relationships or or, uh, maybe we have a family relative or um, someone in our life that's very important to us is facing uh, an addiction of their own, normally the the last thing we want to do is love them. Uh, the first thing we want to do is give them a bunch of ultimatums, uh, and tell them this is the last time, otherwise you'll walk or whatever it looks like. And and I realised that if we love them the way that they are, then normally that provokes some form of enabling. Um, and yet I think I, it's wise for me to say the reason why I'm talking about this today is because there are millions of people facing addiction in America as well as the UK. I think it's one of the areas that we don't talk about enough. Um, and I think we might talk about the issues that someone's having, whether, whether it's sex addiction, drug addiction, porn addiction, um, or any kind of addiction that's basically taking their personality and their behavior off kilter and making their relationships and their life and their workplace is very unhealthy. I think it's very important to recognize that actually I've in the journey that I've gone through, um, both with pastoring people as well as uh, having been an addict myself um, through eating disorders or smoking a lot of cigarettes or um, just just a, a sort of a menagerie of interesting choices over my journey and porn addiction too. Let's not forget that one. Um, and yes, females do struggle with porn addiction as much as men do. And that's something that's coming up. And it's something that I do want to talk about on a separate podcast because porn addiction alone, I think, is um, something that is becoming more and more rife um, as we get further into the 21st century. One of the things that I wanted to talk about today is not just um, loving the addict, but also uh, a couple of pointers that I would say to anyone that is struggling with addiction themselves. Um, Things that I felt were the turning point for me, as well as the turning point for how I loved someone with an addiction. And in this particular podcast, you're also going to hear a conversation between me and a a girl uh, that is a friend of mine. She's about 10 years younger than me. And uh, she uh, overdosed two years ago. And I was having a conversation with her the other day and I asked her, you know, from then till now how she's doing she's now two years sober um and brilliantly so I might add but it's definitely been a journey it's definitely been a difficult one for her and I asked her you know what after the conversation that we had she overdosed her mother had found her and um she basically confessed to me that she had overdosed and I kind of mentored her um I met her many moons ago and both with a passion for writing and I wanted to sort of take her under my wing I knew that she was very talented I knew that she was very funny and so I loved this girl a lot and watching her make the choices that she was making just made me sad um not 
from a point of judgment um, or for a point of fear even, but just, oh my gosh, you know, she's got no idea the gifts that this girl carries. Um, but beautifully, she was always very honest. And so she texted me and told me about her journey and that she had overdosed and that she was currently recovering um, from said overdose and therefore probably on a fair amount of painkillers and and uh, medication from the doctor's. But uh, you'll actually hear in this podcast uh, conversations between me and her, a conversation between me and her, and she recorded it partly because she was still <laughs> she was still managing her life on these drugs, but also um, uh, just coming out of a very difficult time. She didn't know she'd remember the conversation that I was having with her. So we Skyped from the UK to the US, and um, I basically told her a few home truths. One of them was if she was wanting to overdose again and kill herself, that I wasn't going to turn up to her funeral. It's a pretty tough statement to make and um, and one I wouldn't advise on doing unless you actually had a very close relationship with that person, that they knew that you believed in them and then they knew, they knew that you would fight tooth and nail for them. You see, the key with dealing with anyone that might be struggling with addiction is... At some point, you have to believe in them more than they believe in themselves. And that's a very painful part for you to bear because you don't know how it's going to work out. You don't know if they're going to come back from the brink and change their life or if they're going to continue to go down the road of addiction. Uh, just to give you a bit of a backstory, my experience of addiction really started when I was probably about 18, 19, and I was kind of hanging out with the West End actors um, down in London, uh, Soho. And of course, they were all in these fantastic shows in the West End, um, playing to packed houses each night. And after the curtains down and standing ovations galore and everyone's high as a kite just on life and joy itself, well, everyone's trying to maintain that kind of life and high throughout the entire evening. So everyone goes to the local pubs and gets completely wasted. And of course, these were professional entertainers. These were people that used to love a song and a dance. So what better way to continue the song and dance by doing it inebriated? <laughs> And so lots of my friends became pretty much alcoholics based on just their lifestyle. They would, they would get, they didn't have to get up until probably about midday, one o'clock because, you know, their, their work was in the evening. And of course, most people, uh, weren't working in the evening unless you were in the industry. So it became this sort of wild circle of, um, networking and party and personality swinging from the chandeliers at some point of the evening. And, I was dating someone uh, for about two and a half years and um, he was about nine years older than me and I thought he was fabulous. He was just larger than life. Everyone thought he was very, very funny. He was a fantastic singer in a West End show. At the time, he was just coming out of that, but he was kind of very into the theatrical scene and um, he and I were in a long-distance relationship. And probably about a year or two years in, um, he'd actually come uh, come to me and sort of. I remember, I remember probably yeah about two years in, he started to confess some of the things that he was doing in the earlier parts of our relationship that I always thought was my fault. Um, but uh, just to give you a back 
backdrop. Basically, for about a year, year and a half of that relationship, he was an alcoholic. And uh, we'd have conversations long distance. I was in Liverpool, he was in London. And so uh, the conversations would be very pleasant until about an hour in. And then all of a sudden, um, he would get a little bit more possessive or a little bit more protective or a little bit more angry or a little bit more jealous. Whatever it looked like, it was normally me that was at the end of this conversation. It's normally my fault. And I didn't understand what I was doing wrong for these conversations to get to the way that they did. Until probably about two years later, and he was sort of in the height of his sobriety by this point, he confessed to me that he used to line up his drinks as he was having these long phone calls with me. Um, and that's why he got more and more aggressive over the phone call. And I do remember one particular time, just because I was so manipulative and I really tried to control people with my, you know, impressive ways. I use that loosely. Um, I was trying to manipulate him basically into sobriety, which tip number one, by the way, it does not work. And um, even if your manipulative methods do work for a time, uh, it doesn't necessarily give you a sense of peace because you're aware that either you think you're very powerful all of a sudden over this person, or you're also aware um, that anything could change at any moment again. So, um, I basically remember one particular night where, gosh, we must have been, I think it must have been about two o'clock in the morning. And on the kitchen island in his flat in London, um, was a glass of something. It was a beverage of one of his choices. And he was pretty inebriated by this point. And I basically turned to him and I was sort of cross-armed watching him across the way. And I said, if you drink that drink, you will never see me again. If you take one sip of that glass, you will never see me again. And he looked at me, knowing that I was pretty serious about the whole matter. Deep down, I probably wasn't. But as far as he was concerned, I'd never said anything like that before. And so I woke up the next morning and saw the glass of alcohol still sitting on the kitchen island, still untouched. And it was a poignant note for me that said, oh, I can just threaten to leave people every time I want them to give up a, an addiction of their choice. Oh, I didn't realize my words were that powerful. Well, the problem with that was that I then wanted to manipulate other people in addictive behaviors. And um, I don't think I really ever learned the art or the beauty of allowing someone to have a freedom of choice. I don't think I ever really knew the freedom in it. I basically started attending the AA rooms probably about the age of 20. So this is why I'm talking about this subject, because it does it does seem to be the number one thing that I've uh, talked about the most in in all of my journey since the age of 20 to now. Um, I attended the AA, AA rooms, not because I was an alcoholic, but because I wanted to learn the alcoholic, considering my boyfriend was one and my father was struggling too. Um, by the time he got to the age that he did, um, he, he hadn't really touched it at all until he was about 25. So just be aware, addictions don't start young. Sometimes they can come into play much later on in life, especially if it's a generation that haven't been taught how to do pain or how to process pain well. And one of the things I would say is actually a lot of people, and I still think it's a problem today, and I still think it's something we should teach in schools, if possible, maybe not. I'm sure there'll be an awful lot of controversy over this one. But I do think we need to start teaching 
children how to process pain and how to do it well, not to be in denial, not to cover it up, um, not to play the victim, but also to take some ownership on allowing ourselves to cry if it hurts. Um, but somewhere down the line, we teach ourselves to numb the pain and that's the reason why most of us start getting addicted and we get a, so it could be one of two things. One, it's either trauma, past pain that's coming still to haunt us and we haven't dealt with it. Or it's also down to the fact that we just, it's just an escapism. It's a way of getting out of the mundane or it's a way of keeping on the very high that you've experienced in life, whether you're an actor in the middle of a packed theatre house or you're a football player that is used to a stadium cheering your name. There is this attempt always to continue to stay that high and want to stay at that peak all the time rather than just embracing the, the sometimes the mundanity of life. Um, I digress. One of the things um, that I started to learn out when I went into the um, AA rooms was just how many people are in the AA rooms and also just how brilliant it was to network. I had no, I'd never seen probably as many celebrities as I had in the rooms. And of course, you start having a lingo and then people start chatting, going, are you in the rooms? Are you in the rooms? Oh, I thought so. Okay, yeah, yeah. So I still recognize them today when when people have been sober even for 25 years I recognize when people have um, got a pretty good ability of controlling their emotional health or their management um, we can be extremists we can um, go from addiction straight into a very extreme form of sobriety um, it's that traditional age-old thing of becoming a non-reform, a reformed non-smoker. And, um, I certainly was one of those for a time too. Um, but I think the healthiest we get or the healthier we get, the more we, we just really do allow people to go on their own journey. And one of the things about learning the addict is exactly that. Now, some people might say, well, what if that I'm about to see someone OD? Well, what do I do with that information? Well, that's one of the reasons why my friend kindly was all right with allowing us to use this recording of me and her. And we've just taken snippets. We're not using her name. Uh, I just really care about covering her in this journey. But I'm so incredibly proud of her, not only because she became sober and, and recognized um, just that her life was important, but also the beauty of recognizing that she she was honest about it. She wasn't just deciding to be sober for the sake of me and everyone else around her. She she was just honest about the process that she doesn't want to do this, but she knows she has to. Uh, she was also willing to take ownership of, of the pain of it. She was willing to be authentic and she was willing to look at the stuff that was really underlying it. So really addiction is really just an umbrella of what's really going on. That's a given, that's obvious, but most of society is still complaining about the addiction themselves. I remember uh, back in the day, back to those West End days with the theatrical bunch, um, I remember seeing, um, I, I remember a story of a friend that they'd got in their Porsche and they'd driven home and their wife came out to them because they'd crashed the car in the front garden and um, right into a tree to a point where this tree trunk was literally in the passenger seat and she opened the door and he's sitting in the driver's seat and he says, why is there a tree in my car? Why is there a tree in my car? And it was a bit of a turning point for him. Sometimes it gets to a moment, a point, 
are hitting rock bottom, as they say. But sometimes for the addict or the the relative, they often feel like they're not as important as the drink, that they are. And because, of course, it's relationally, it's a nightmare. Uh, Relationally, it's very unpredictable. If you're married to someone that has, uh, you've got children with, and it's very difficult to be able to just allow someone to make a freedom of choice and a choice, even if it's not the kind of choice that you would make, especially when you're both taking care of children. Um, and that also includes porn addiction as well. And just the dichotomy that adds to a marriage when someone is addicted to porn on the kind of level that I'm going to talk about at some point soon. For me, I find it so interesting that we still think that manipulation is the best way to deal with them. So number one, I I would say, is making sure that you still have belief in them on some level. Number two is not enabling the addiction. So uh, not going to get them drugs, drink, um, nor uh, trying to cover up their addiction. That's one of the places that I did go through um, in my life was trying to cover up the fact that, you know, my, my relative or um my boyfriend was an alcoholic I would always make excuses or I'd leave early or I'd I'd always find a way or people couldn't come around at a certain time because that's the point that they were too wasted um and that would flip from covering them all the way to uh, becoming like this detective where I was trying to find all of the hidden evidence if that makes sense deathly on either part because you lose yourself and so There is a bit of a journey. It's very difficult, for example, if you're married to someone and you've chosen to make this lifelong commitment and you didn't realize what you were signing up for all the time. And I've certainly navigated marriages and helped counsel marriages through some of the toughest addictions that I've seen so far. Some have survived, some haven't. Uh, When some person, when one of the people are not choosing to take on ownership of their own journey or they haven't hit rock bottom or they're in complete denial that they have addiction, then that's a lot harder to deal with and a lot harder to not want to go into manipulative ways or to try and control them or even to threaten leaving just as another, like I did, just as another form of um, manipulation. I think the number one thing I would do is actually ask why are they doing it? Why do they feel the need to? If they are in a place of recognizing, yeah, I'm, I'm aware. I remember one of the things that I started to do, um, was I would watch someone, um, get too drunk, um, knowing that they probably won't remember a thing that they saw the night before. And I'm really not a big fan of filming that information, um, unless they request you to, unless they're in a place where they're like, actually, could you, could you film me next time I'm um, inebriated because that would really help me out? Well, for me, that doesn't, I don't really like that. It feels like a shaming game. Um, but if, they, if they've if they asked for it and they really are trying to understand what our perspective is, then I'm happy to do that just as long as it's with their consent and as long as it's just between me and them. Um, when you have people uh, going through denial, there's really not very much you can do other than make sure that you are safe and that you've not completely lost yourself in their addiction. If you haven't listened to my podcast on codependency, I would recommend you listen to that because it kind of ties into this too. Um, 
And I would suggest that if you are struggling with um, any relatives that is an addict at this particular moment in time, then um, Al-Anon for alcoholics, and I think sometimes it can actually play into those who are dealing with drug addiction too. Um, Al-Anon is a very good group therapy for relatives of alcoholics, um, drug addicts, NA, SA, whatever the ism is. It actually helps relatives of um, addicts just to be able to know they're not alone, uh, to recognize the journey. And also just to remind you that this is not your addiction to be trying to rescue. This is their addiction that they have to understand on their own. And sometimes it did take um, a divorce or sometimes it did take a death until people recognized what was happening. For example, the story that I told you about with my friend who said, why is there a tree in my passenger seat? Well, that was the wake up call for him, but that could have ended very differently. And it has ended differently in certain meetings that I've been into. Some of the stories are pretty horrific. Um, and I, I think on my own journey, I remember going into, um, when I was struggling only for a year and a half, I talk about eating disorders. If I've had them all my life, I really haven't. I only had it for a year and a half. I'm pretty strong willed <laughs> when it comes to recognizing I have a problem. And, um, I went into a, a meeting and it was filled with bulimics and also, um, overeaters, which was an interesting concoction in itself. Cause you had one person on the left hand side eating a big packet of biscuits. And I wasn't sure if they were going to have two fingers for dessert or if they were actually just going to keep it down. It was the most bizarre. It was the most bizarre meeting yet. It was also evident that they were all sharing the same problem, which was emotional heating or emotional restriction from food. Um, either way, it was all about control. And again, it went back to pain. I really only went into an eating disorder because I was hoping that if I starved myself, then perhaps my dad would stop drinking or my boyfriend would stop drinking. Rather than looking at the entire thing as a whole and go, Carrie, do you recognize that you're actually just trying to rewrite the ending with your boyfriend because you can't seem to control your dad? Um, and you actually just haven't grieved the fact that your dad isn't the guy that he was earlier. Um, I really didn't know how to manage that kind of pain until much later on in my life. So I would say there's a few things. One, it's, it's, it's too easy to try and start being manipulative, uh, be uh, restrictive on um, how much you engage with them. Thinking that we're, sometimes we use boundaries, but actually boundaries become very manipulative too, if I can be honest. Sometimes people use the boundary book as a fantastic way of silent punishment. And I'm not suggesting that there aren't times for that. There are times where people are just toxic. They aren't, they have no radar for your well-being. Um, domestic violent relationships do occur often after alcoholic, um, drinking, um, or any kind of, um, substance misuse. Um, or it doesn't even have to be involved with addicts for domestic violence. But there is definitely a journey where um, we lose ourselves. We lose ourselves. We think it's our fault as we love the addict. And so loving the addict looks like not involving ourselves in it. So removing yourself pleasantly without judgment, without criticism, going not tonight, I'm not going to be involved, but I love you and... If there's anything else I can do for you, let me know. Maybe it's uh, some, um, and it's the same thing actually when people are coming out of addiction. Um, 
recognizing that they can't probably hang out with the same people they were because they were the life and soul of the party when they were high on cocaine. But now they're not taking cocaine anymore. The rest of the crowd are pretty disappointed with them because they're not joining in or your yes solidified their permission. And now you're no longer saying yes. It's very similar to when I say I don't have sex before marriage. Well, I can normally tell when people are actually respectful towards my decision um, because they don't give me a hard time about it. They just respect it. But I can tell when other people still have that kind of gang-like mentality or they think that my actions will then reflect an opinion or a judgment call on how they might live life. Well, I don't... I don't care about what you do. I just, this is just what I choose to do. This is just effective emotional management for me. I just know how I work. I know how I'm wired. And so this works for me. I'm happier than ever before. You might not think so because I'm not having sex. You might not think so because I'm not taking cocaine. But the reality is, is this works for me. So you need to be all right with that. And you need to not be able to just reject me because I'm not because I'm not doing what you're doing anymore. It is part of the grieving process as people come from addicts into sobriety is having to lose a lot of friends. And, you know, on this side of the equation, I'm like, sweetheart, they weren't your friends in the first place. They were just your substance buddies um, and people that you get a high with. But they were looking straight through you. They weren't interested in kindness, nor were they interested in self-sacrifice for the sake of your friendship with each other. So there's one of the things that I journey through with my friend, and you're going to listen to now a little recording between me and her. Now, you are going to hear me be pretty tough with her, but I did ask her if that was all right to do. And I also knew that she quite appreciated direct confrontation as opposed to sweeping everything under the carpet and pretending everything's fine. I need you to write down pain probably like an hour a day. It's a big commitment. That makes you feel pain. Yeah, just the question, like going right back to childhood, what have you discovered about yourself? What is the first thought that comes into your brain of like, why am I here? Why am I not? Because here's the deal. You wouldn't be acting out like this if you had the picture perfect upbringing. Yeah, of course. So that stuff is why potentially you're acting out now. You're trying to rewrite pain somewhere or trying to rewrite the ending of it, right? So that's the other part of this like journey. Pain is not is not the thing to be frightened of. It's your reaction to pain that I'm that is the thing to be frightened of. And yeah. I think what you've tried to do is just medicate yourself on anything, quite literally with medical drugs, but also anything. So, um, so there's that. So I would say no more than an hour a day. And then when you do have that hour of day, then I want you to go out and do something fun. Okay. And it might just be I don't know. Go back to the good old times. Like, what was wrong with roller skating, for crying out loud? I do. I can roller skate along the beach. That's fine. Well, then do that. That's just, okay. Just, like, have... I just want you to have friends that are, honestly, friends that feel a little bit boring to you because they're not oh, getting yeah, off their I have, face. I have, like, two of them. Right. Well, they're probably going to be your best friends right now. I know. Because, yeah. I mean, as much as I want to be there for you, I am 6,000 miles away, and I don't want to promise that I can be there when I can't. Because that's just going to let you let you down, and you'll be really disappointed. And would be silly. Then you'll leave a note saying, well, I did it because Carrie wasn't available on Skype. <laughs> so. Then you'd have to come to the funeral. No, I definitely wouldn't, still wouldn't come to the funeral. It'd be your fault. And I'd be like, no. we had a pact. <laughs> I refuse to go to her funeral 
because she killed herself. So, so I've got a roller skate along the beach, pick up boring friends. Exactly. This sounds fun, doesn't it? So, why am I doing this? Yeah, you're doing this because I want you to see the beauty and the subtlety. Because, yeah, yeah, I have to. Everything is, you feel alive because it's so dramatic. You feel alive because it's like nothing means anything unless it's huge. But actually, the reality is like everything is way more meaningful than subtlety. You know, I was thinking, like, at the festival on, um, like, the Saturday, we had just taken a load of MDMA. Yeah. And, uh, like, it makes you love everything. Like, really love everything. Yeah. And uh, I was thinking today, like, it's absolutely stupid because even if you didn't take that, you could still feel that sort of love towards somebody or something. Like, truly, like, you don't need it. And it's an escapism. It's because people are so scared to admit to themselves that that's how they feel. Yeah. It's also, the reality is, is hallucinogenics as well are one of the greatest pathways of getting into spiritual warfare. Mm. So, um, I don't know many, I don't know many friends that, that get into this much of a hole unless it's drugs. And problem even the drugs they don't mean anything yeah well this is a great revelation you're having mm-hmm. welcome yeah. i think but this is the problem the more you do it the harder it's going to be to get away from it so um it's all it, yeah exactly yeah yeah i'm my way back there yeah and it's, um, I think, I think the moment you surrender to the fact that, yeah, I'm an addict and I can't, I'm not sure whether you're there. That's why I need to, I like, I know I've got a problem. You've got to surrender. You've got to surrender to the fact that you've got to really be like, I'm dropping all of this part of my life in regards to the drugs and all this kind of stuff and substances. That's but actually good. this is what I could get back. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is because you have no vision of of this, you don't want to yeah. put this down. So I'm like, I actually, this is why I'm like, you need people to inspire you. You need to be around people that are super clean living, healthy individuals that yeah. that aren't constantly dealing with like partying and that's how they deal with their life. They don't want to. No, but I don't think London's safe for you right now. It's safer than here. How come? Um, because this town is so small. Temptation is like, like it's a text away. I think you're still running away, though. Maybe. Yeah, pro- yeah probably. Because you got, you, darling, okay. temptation is rife in London. Huh? And you don't have a mum to find you overdosing in London. I have clean, healthy friends. So get some new ones. I could find you some if you need me to, but this is actually your own journey. Like, you just got to be proactive. Like, I, I still, this is why I'm like, I don't know whether you want this, because there's still parts of you that are like... I do, I do want it. Yeah, you do. You do, but I'm like, how much are you willing... And you've said you want to really do this, but I'm like, you're already giving me excuses about you don't have clean people in Eastbourne. No, it's not an excuse. It's not an excuse. It's right. Because the only thing that I can think of that would help is me getting out of Eastbourne. That's not going to happen. I have right. to do what 
what you're telling me. But I think here's the thing, you'll start to actually enjoy boring friends and realise there's actually a greater substance to them and a goodness to them and a kindness to them. And yeah. as soon as you start being comfortable with being vulnerable and actually being honest about your normal journey, then you're going to be fine. But I think there's a few things you need to start opening up to. One is I admit that you like really admit I'm an addict and there's, and there I, and this is an illness and this is something that I cannot function on a few drugs. I can't function on a few glasses. Like this whole lifestyle is, is, and it is literally going to kill you. Yeah, that's where I've got to get to. I know, I know I've got a problem, I'm not. Like, this sort of standing up in a meeting saying I'm a drug addict. That's all right. Yeah, it's me. It's because it becomes real. But also, what will help you is that you'll hear people go, this is, this is how I nearly kill myself, or you'll see, you'll meet people that have lost people. And yeah. it might shock you enough to go, no, I can't go through this myself. Yeah. So, that. so I think, yeah, my, my heart for you is, and I've, and I've got to go now, but my heart for you is that there has to be a real honesty with yourself of going, actually, no, this is, this is addiction. I'm, my brain is wired that way. This is all I've known. If I want to live, I'm going to have to live pretty powerfully. Yeah. And or you do what my dad did and just continue down that line and go in and out even of AA and before we know it, we wake up and and it's left me broken. It'll leave your mother never the same again. Not an option, don't want that. Right. Good girl. I I love you a lot and I really believe that you can do this, but this is going to be the toughest year for you. Sobriety will get easier. It will get a lot easier. Before you know, you'll be like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm like two years sober. Yeah, I can't wait for that. I have, but I think you've got to let go of the belief that it's all fun because it's not. Yeah, it's not fun. It's not no. fun. Actually. And actually, yeah, and. Fun. Yeah. You, yeah. You might try and kid yourself a few times, trying to make out, like, no, it's fine if I do one or two. But actually, the reality is, like, no, this has got to be a whole different system for you. I have, um, my first meeting tomorrow at quarter to nine. Will you let me know how it goes? Hmm. I think I think by the time you've left it, I still yet to. I think it'll be like three in the morning for me. So, so just let me know how it goes. Yeah. And listen, I'm really proud of you for like wanting to change. Don't do the emotion thing yet. I'm not I know. <laughs> you got to suck it up. Thank you. Look at me, look at me when I say this, right? Um, your life is too important. I know. I know. No, you don't. I do, we've totally, I've, I've got this. I know. I don't want to be sat here in, I don't want to not be sat here in another six months having this conversation with you, no. making me look you in the eyes, telling me to not freak out with emotions. Right. You have no choice. It's way more powerful when people are comfortable with emotion. But yeah. one day you'll realise that you do actually deserve it. Everyone deserves it. This is this is much better. This is much better than a good book. This is this is you. Yeah. This is you yeah, discovering real. yourself. Yeah. And how brilliant you can be. It's reality. Yeah. Which yeah. is a much more interesting story. Yeah.
I love you. I love you. All right. I will talk to you later. So as you can see, I really love this girl, but I also wanted to know that she really wanted to get sober. You see, here's the deal. When you're dealing with anyone that wants to come out of addiction on any kind of form, they have to want it themselves. It's the only way that you can build trust with that person coming out of um, any kind of addiction or just misuse of substances. Um, I would say that she wasn't taking them every day. Um, and much like my father, he wasn't drinking every day. But when it was touched, it was this um, amazing ability to justify, oh, I can have one or two. And then all of a sudden you had to be over the edge or beyond what you can even control yourself to be. So it's the binge taking of addiction that is sometimes deadlier than the daily. I remember with um, with my lovely boyfriend, God bless him. Um, he was actually a real, he was actually a real gift to me. Even though I talk about his addiction, I learned so much about human behavior. And I also learned so much about myself in how I handle other people when they're out of my, my control or when they're out of, um, um, reasoning. I realized that I wasn't very good at loving people, when they weren't acting the same way that I, I might act. Um, and I realized that in itself was pretty judgmental. Even if the addict doesn't want to be acting like that, there was still a part of me that was a bit holier than thou because I wasn't the addict. And lo and behold, I became a codependent, which was as addictive as the substance itself. But I remember when, when I learned how manipulative I could be in a relationship, I had to repent of my own journey and I had to repent of trying to control someone else and what they wanted to do with their life. And of course, it's never very fun to be around these people that are just constantly monitoring your behavior or watching every single move you're doing. Like you don't feel believed in with those kind of people. And he didn't feel believed in by me, you know, and understandably so. At the same time, it was kind of the kick that he needed and recognised, oh, wow, I really have a problem. Because by four o'clock in the afternoon, if we hadn't had a drink, he'd be like, oh my gosh, we got to four o'clock and we haven't drunk anything. <laughs> Whereas other friends, like my friend that you just heard, well, she wasn't every day. It was just something that said, oh, I, I, I need to get wasted. I need to get out of my head. And also it's fun. These are fun. Drugs are fun. And so my advice of her doing the mundane and my advice of her finding kind friends probably didn't sound all that appealing but this need for getting completely out of it or being over the top or over dramatic is a kick in itself um it's a distraction to not have to deal with the things that we're really running away from so if you are a lover of an addict, whether they're a friend of yours, a brother, a sister, a mother or father, a daughter or a son, or you're just head over heels in love with someone that has just been like this for many years, well, kudos for you for staying in it. But I would also say if you've lost yourself completely, then it might be time to get some other people in to mediate. 
I would also suggest that counselling should only happen when both parties want to be involved in it. They've got to want this freedom themselves. They've got to want to come out of it. And sometimes it is rock bottom, but we're not the people to bring on rock bottom. They're the ones that need to discover it on their own journey. Now, here's the painful part. Sometimes it means you're actually going to have to watch someone walk through a car, car crash. Sometimes it's important to actually bring them off the brink. But if you don't allow them to make their choices, they will never learn to become powerful people in their own right or take ownership. In fact, they'll even start to get addicted to you because they love the attention they're getting from you or they love the fact that you've come to rescue them for a fifth or sixth time. There have been so many friendships that I made in my 20s based on me rescuing them from their breakup. And then when I wasn't there for them because I had to work or I had another friend in my life and they were toxic and they weren't very kind people. So I actually would say that relationships and love for each other should be based on exactly that admiration and respect. But if someone is actually going through a journey of addiction, it means they're crying for help. Of course, it means they're crying for help. But it also means that just there's other things underneath it. Too often we're talking about the crime of the addiction itself rather than looking at underneath what is happening. So I can bet you, I can bet you a thousand bucks that whoever you are dealing with right now is probably dealing with insecurity about their worth or who they are, or if they were even loved in the first place, or even if they were meant to be on the planet. Secondly, there's some kind of traumatic journey that they've gone through and they don't quite know how to manage life itself. And thirdly, Sometimes it's been a matter of survival for them. They've known nothing else, which is one of the reasons why the addiction is nothing against you. And sometimes when we're loving addicts, all we want to do is to say, it's me all the drink, it's me all the drugs, it's me all the porn. But it never looks like that to the addict. The addict is just trying to survive on a day-to-day basis. And normally when I'm, na- when I'm navigating through addiction with someone that I'm counselling, pastoring, or just trying to find freedom in, I've seen a lot of people find freedom with two things. One is, and I really do mean this, this could be addictions of 10, 15, 20 years. But when I sit down in a room with them and I say, I'm not scared of your addiction for the record. In fact, it's inconsequential to me. What I care about is why we picked it up in the first place. So I'll actually not ask them, I'll ask them not to stop. It's it's quite controversial. I realise, you know, a lot of especially a lot of churches are probably going, what, you don't tell them to stop when they've come to you with this heinous sin and crime? Well, here's the deal. The first thing that Christ did when he met the Samaritan woman was tell her that she was honest. It was never to tell her the culprits and the things that she had done wrong. Of course, they navigate through that conversation. But I do care about the fact that these people that come to us, they're coming to us for a moment of um, help. They're coming to us for compassion. Maybe they're even looking for permission from you to continue it, which of course you're not going to. But they're looking to be still known and seen, to be accepted, to be <sighs> to be heard, even if they have committed the most heinous of crimes. And when they look at you and you look back at them going, I care about you still. I don't know why you're wrecking your life like this, but we'll get through it, you and me. But I'll only do this if you really want it. And I'm not sure if you want it. If you have their buy-in, then normally they'll be able to start giving you everything that you're actually wanting to start to look at, which is, at what point did this start? 
Well, it started when I lost my dad. Well, it started when I went through a divorce. Well, it started when I was given far too much fame far too quickly and I just didn't know what to do with all this pressure and expectation on me all of a sudden. Or, well, actually, it was way before I was famous and it was when my mum and dad divorced. Whatever it looks like, this was my survival technique. This is how I got out of my head. This is how I escaped. And then I discovered that I was funny or I discovered it was fun to do this. And for the time being, it was all about partying. And I'm like, right, okay, great. Well, I want you to continue this. And that's normally the the most startling information that they want to hear. In fact, that's the last thing they want to hear if they're getting to this point of just wanting to be broken free from it. But it's important for them to understand that I'm not scared of what they've done or what they're doing. What I do care about is asking you about five minutes before you're about to take a line of Coke, take a shot of whiskey, (laughs) inject yourself with heroin, or click online for a tenth time today. What I care about is why, what happened five minutes in your mind before you picked it up. Because that's probably the beginning of the answers of what you're doing. And then also asking to start cutting it back, cutting it down. So that actually the rewiring that has taken place over these years of addiction, it's really the brain has just gone, oh, I like that. That makes me feel good. Let's do it again. Drugs are a beautiful short-term fix, but when you have binge addicts, so people that aren't doing it every day but are doing it intermittently, well, they can convince themselves much more of like, well, it's just this once. Whereas someone that does something on a day-to-day basis, they give it up on pretty extreme levels and knows that they, they can never touch it again. But we have to be honest with ourselves and start going, can I really, am I really wired the way that other people are? Can I really pick up two glasses of wine and put it down? Or am I going to try and finish the rest of the bottle and then have another one? Well, it, that's that's the importance of being honest. But how can you be honest with yourself when every time you try to be honest, you've been rejected by other people in front of you? So we need to be a safe ground, even if their mess scares us, even if them getting blottoed really frightens us or actually damages something within our own relationship with them, whether it's respect or just downright dangerous. There has to be a level that, not in the height of the moment, but somewhere over the next few days after whatever they've done, to sit down and go, hey, listen, this doesn't feel good to me, but I'm also not going to disconnect with you and silently punish you because we're never going to get to the bottom of why we're doing this. But talk to me about what you're trying to run away from because that's the real answer. What are you really trying to run away from and and is this all you really think you can survive with? When we give ultimatums or we start to believe that the the substance that they're addicted to is more important than ourselves, then we start to shame them. Then we start to make them feel even more unknown. I've seen lots of wives or even lots of husbands to wives, depending on who has the porn addiction, make it a battle between them and the issue. Whereas actually the battle is them and the pain that that person's carrying. That's the stuff that we need to look at. When you're dealing with someone that's in denial of the addiction, there's very little you can do other than, hey, these are going to be the boundaries. I can't deal with that stuff when you do this. Um, so this is this is my requirement. And in order to build back trust, these are the things I'm going to need. And if someone is choosing to still be in addiction, which there can often be that case, then you have to make an, an informed decision as to what's healthier for you. 
Is it a case of like, hey, listen, I'm going to distance myself or go on a, a sort of official separation or whatever it looks like. I'm not condoning all these different things before I get people writing into me, telling me to repent of what I've said. I'm just saying when you've got, especially domestic violence, when you've got that kind of thing going on, the last thing that you want is for people to be in danger, believe me. So there are moments and times where you have to remove yourself from the situation, but it doesn't have to be aggressive. It doesn't have to be angry. And it certainly doesn't have to be with put downs and dismissals. And I've certainly done that myself and I really regret it. What you really want to do is act accordingly in a way that when you look back in two years' time, you'll be really proud of how you handled it. Even though it was a difficult situation or conversation, you'll be very proud of the fact that A, you gave yourself a voice, but also that you actually considered the other person's feelings at the same time. And there's lots of conversations that I hear, especially in Christian networks, of having your voice heard or having your needs met. I don't know how, I've said this before, but I just don't know how biblical that is in the sense of, where does the other person come into context here? Because both need to have their knees met and both need to have a voice. And sometimes people get trodden down, especially if they're addicts, they get trodden down on um, by way of judgment, by way of being holier than thou. I want churches to start opening their doors wider to the addicts. I want um, establishments to start recognizing that 100 people a day are committing suicide um, or have drug overdoses every single day in America. I want people to understand that by the time that people are 18, 90% of people have discovered their, their drug of choice. There is an awful lot of work we need to do into training people on how to deal with pain and how to process pain. But on top of that, have a moment for yourself and ask yourself, how productive is this conversation going to be with me and the addict? And if you're an addict yourself... And you're still navigating if you do actually have an addiction or if it's just a substance that's being slightly overused. Well, I would suggest that you start finding people. Don't isolate. Don't hide away. Find people that are safe enough to confess this journey with. And find people that will just be willing to walk through the journey with you because there are people out there. And I just remember, and I'll finish with this, a friend of mine that was very, very dear to me and still is, if you're listening, I love you, um, he he and I uh, uh, did school together a long time ago and um, he got into a very successful career and was pretty much earning tens of thousands of pounds a day in, a, in an environment that was pretty toxic. And it became an awful lot about money and status. And then, of course, it became the company itself were just doing some interesting things. And my friend ended up sort of getting into the cycle of drugs with rich people. And I remember even in the height of his addiction, thinking this could go one of two ways. One is he could throw himself off a building or he could come out of this, but it's going to be quite a dramatic resolution it's going to be quite a dramatic 180 and I remember seeing him at the height of his drugs and I also remember a conversation where he'd actually called the police saying there are a bunch of people outside of my house and you need to tell them to go they're being stalkers outside my house well there was no one there <laughs> and he was just hallucinating 
Um, of course, so they turn up and he's just there on his own high as a kite. So I think that was a bit of a turning point for him. And uh, now he's a fantastic counsellor for people that are dealing with drug issues and, um, and drug addiction for a foundation in the UK. And I remember thinking this was actually part of a calling in his life. One thing I would say is addicts and um, whether I dated them or whether I was related to them, there is actually something, and this is very common with addicts, they're actually very charming, very creative, very brilliant people. And somewhere in the brain, there's just a slight ism that means that this brilliant curiosity and this creativity almost makes them feel invincible. It's also what makes them utterly charming. And it was the thing that made me so enamored by these kind of people and why I love being around them. And they really were the best people to hang out with on a party. And they really were the best people to navigate and talk about life and curiosity. And they're a huge amount of fun, but of course it wasn't very stable. It wasn't very steadfast. Um, and of course it was rife with insecurity. So, you know, all the things that come with insecurity as well. But just to finish off, I just, I don't, I don't want to sound like it's us and the addicts. It, that's not at all what it is. You're dealing with people that have feelings, that have emotions, that even though they might come across as completely disregarding yours, know that their brains, scientifically, their brains are wired slightly differently, that there is an ism in the brain and it has been proven that addicts just function slightly differently. And so when people are saying, oh, I have a addictive personality, so I actually have to deal with things slightly different than other people might. I've got friends that might be able to take a couple of hits of drugs and then just leave it for another five months. Well, I know I'm not that kind of person that can handle that stuff. Um, and I, you know, I also don't condone drugs really <laughs> in this day and age. Um, so I, I think the better we get at being able to process pain on a healthy level, just allowing ourselves to have pain on days, allowing ourselves to recognize that that's part of life, unfortunately. We are human. We're not currently living in heaven, although we'd love heaven to invade earth as many times of the day as possible. But I am often aware we are contending with quite literally demonic um experiences and, you know, taking hallucinogenics, sexual sin, and... um anything that cavorts the wrong kind of spiritual warfare, then, you know, then we're opening ourselves up to it. But I, it's also a matter of having conversations without judgment, always with compassion and always with a sense behind it that goes, I believe in you. That's why I'm having this conversation. I'm not doing it because I'm scared of you. I'm not doing it because you've disappointed me. I'm doing it because, hey, I love you and you're important in this world, never mind to me. And so if you go in with those kind of conversations, I can't tell you how powerful it is to walk through with someone, not just give them a booklet or send them off to AA, but actually walk through with someone going through addiction. It's nothing more brilliant than celebrating their sobriety years later. And so therefore, this particular podcast is dedicated to my friend that you heard me talking to today because I'm so monumentally proud of her for not just becoming sober but also doing it in a way that she was willing to share that record some of that recording today for the sake of other people and uh she's a brilliant woman in her, in her 20 in her 20s and i know she's going to do some amazing things over her life and it excites me when i see people that just take the bull by the horns and are ready to win the bullfight 
And for me, the bullfight is the red flag versus the bull. And the matador is the one who can overcome addiction. I really do believe everyone can overcome addiction if they want to. But it also is, I do believe it is a sickness and is something that actually we can gain power in, but we actually have to be willing to recognise that we're perhaps not wired the same way that other people are wired. Um, it isn't a weakness. Addiction isn't a weakness. Um, it was a bizarre way of handling pain. And so somewhere we might have been modelled it from previous relatives. We might have been brought up with the same problem. It might just be a family assignment that's gone all the way through. But I do remember one friend that told me, I met him in the rooms and he said, you know why I believe in God? And I said, no. He said, because I'm one of seven brothers and six of those brothers are in jail. I'm the only one that isn't. And it's because of my belief in God and the fact that I could change the channel on the amount of addictions and drugs that all of us were doing that makes me believe that we actually have a spirit inside of us to overcome and battle the very thing that we think has taken over our life. And so it's the reason why I'm alive today, because I can bet you anything if I had chosen to go along the same lines as my brothers did, and I was very close to it. I'd be in jail, if not dead. And so I dedicate this to my friend. I also dedicate this to people that are currently in a very difficult position with someone they love very, very dearly, watching them suffer to themselves. I think it's one of the most painful things to watch, and my heart is with you. But I would say this, there is a way, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, Sometimes it involves very difficult conversations and sometimes they listen to you very beautifully, um, like my friend humbly did, as you hear me, have give her a bit of a tough talk. And sometimes they don't want to hear it. But if you do it with kindness and love, if you do it with patience and joy, if you do it with gentleness and with self-control, then I can assure you that peace will come very quickly. And I can assure you that a seed has at least been planted, if not the flower is already blooming. And so thank you for listening to this. And if there are any questions that anyone has on this particular podcast, then don't hesitate to contact me. Um, I do have a Facebook page um, called Carrie Lloyd. And um, if you want to subscribe, you can comment on the subscription page on iTunes um, or you can even message us on um, our Facebook page. We're just about to change the website um, to just glam it up a little bit more, darlings. Um, but if you do want to listen to um, the next podcast, it's coming in the next couple of weeks. Um, and I will be doing another podcast on porn addiction in the nearby future. If there are any topics that you would like me to talk on, if you have any questions for me that you would like me to discuss on this podcast, then uh, you can email um, uh, onecarriegrace at gmail.com um, or you can message us on our Facebook page for Carrie Lloyd. Um, and 
thank you for listening and thank you for all of your lovely messages that you've been sending through i've really loved hearing from you i love these topics of just navigating human behavior and life itself um but just know that i'm very grateful for you listening and um, it's an absolute pleasure to do this for you have a beautiful week see you later